You ever known somebody that was a, uh, that was a storyteller? And I don't mean someone who tells lies by saying storyteller, but uh, I'm talking about someone who's really good at just like taking the normal, everyday things that happen in life and just making them seem so in, like just engaging that you just want to listen to them hours and hours and hours. You know, some people just have a way about them uh, that they can do that, that they can, they can just weave a story and just make you sit there and just think, oh my goodness. Well, you know, um, Jesus was a storytelling man. And what I mean by that is that uh, he had a way about him when it came to telling stories that, that just engaged his audience and still engage us today. But the stories that he shared uh, were more than just things that make us laugh or make us cry or make us wish for bygone days. They, they were things that cut to the core. They were things that got right to the heart of spiritual matters. Um, as I was praying about what to cover for the next several weeks, I decided I wanted to start in Matthew chapter 13, so you can go there. And what I want to do is the next several times that I get the opportunity to preach, I want to work through some of the parables of Jesus and look at some of these stories that he told. Jesus is the master storyteller, and to see what it was he told. Uh, now, now, when I got to thinking about what is a parable, the best definition I ever found about what a parable is was this, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Jesus took normal things. He told stories of sheep and shepherds, fields and harvests, fishermen, huge catches, fathers and sons, the wealthy and the poor, the sick and the healthy. And through those normal things, especially they would have been normal to his first audience, he told of deep spiritual truths. And so I want to begin this morning with a parable that really is easy to understand only because Jesus gives us the explanation but yet it is still hard to come to terms with, and that is the parable of the sower, which begins in Matthew chapter 13. So I want us to read verses 1 through 9, um, and then we're going to look at what all this tells us. So it says in verse 1, it says, The same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the lake, and great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell on the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Can we pray? Father, we just ask that as we open up your word, as we study it today, God, that you would speak to us regarding this parable. What does it mean, God? Pierce our hearts. I pray that we would see where we fit in this. Because, Father, I believe that you've, you've told us here, and I believe Jesus' point here is that every single person fits one of these categories. And I pray that we would understand where we are and would walk out of this place on the right path. And it's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen. There's a few basic things I think we can assume from this parable, and that would be, first of all, that the seed is the Word of God, that it is the gospel of Jesus Christ when it's taught, when it's shared. We can assume that the sower here was originally Jesus Christ, but it also includes anyone who declares the gospel, anyone who teaches the Word of God, anyone who tells others about Jesus, whether that be in a pulpit, whether that be in a Sunday school class, whether that be just in a regular everyday conversation with a neighbor or a friend or a stranger. 
And we can, we can already know here that the different soils represent different types of believers. And so this morning, I want us to see the three paths to destruction that Jesus describes here. And also, I want us to see, most importantly, the path to life. Because I really do believe that Jesus is telling here, the point here is that every single one of us are on one of these paths. But yet, only the last path leads to eternal life. So let's look at these. The first path, he says here, is the hard path. He describes here um, a, a spot on the ground that is so hard that the seed can't sink in. I mean, you can imagine that, uh, that you know, just imagine this picture. Ba- back in these days, back in Jesus' days, they didn't build fences around their fields. And so you just had these big open lands, and they kind of knew where their property was, I'm sure based on landmarks, where certain trees were and things like that. And so when people would go on journeys, they would simply just cut across fields. There was no need to go around these things. There were no fences. They would just cut right through a field. Now, what happens when that, when that goes on, on and on and on? Paths to begin to develop, and that ground gets packed down. It becomes hard. It becomes packed down to the point where nothing can get in. And so here is this farmer who was doing what he would have done during that day, and he was walking along, broadcasting the seed by hand, tossing it out. And inevitably, some of that seed would have fallen on the hard ground. The ground where it had no chance of sinking in. And in that moment, the birds, it said here, would sweep in and they would pick it up as food. Now let's look in Matthew chapter 13, verse 18. And let's see how Jesus describes this, how he defines this hard path. He says here in verse 18, he says, Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. And so Jesus is speaking of those who reject the gospel simply because they don't understand it. Now, why would someone be hard to the word of God? Why would someone be completely hardened that they wouldn't even give the word a chance? I can think of at least four reasons. First of all, I can think that they may be hardened because they've never heard the gospel before. Jesus says that, that they, these individuals didn't grasp it, they didn't, the seed didn't sink in, but simply because they didn't understand it. And, and in reality, when you think about the gospel message, it really doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? I mean, why would a God in heaven send His perfect Son down to die for imperfect people? That doesn't make sense. And so you can imagine that if someone hears the gospel the first time, there is a chance that they would reject it simply because they would say, that's not logical. Why would someone want to do that? Why would a God in heaven possibly want to do that? You know, I've I've encountered these kind of people just about every time I've ever gone on a mission trip. I've either either met these people or I've been with teammates who have met these people, people who have never heard the gospel, and they hear the gospel explained, and they say, that's just too good to be true. That just doesn't make sense. And they do so mainly because they've never heard it before. It's never been That seed has never hit that ground before, and so they simply can't understand it. It also might be that people are hardened because of past difficulties. Maybe something didn't go the way they expected. Maybe life dealt them a hard blow. Maybe there was a death of a loved one, a cancer diagnosis, a job loss, a divorce. Maybe they went to church one time and had a very bad experience, and they walked away from the church never to go back. And maybe these people begin to develop some attitude that says, well, you know, how could God let this happen to me? How could God allow this to take place? I mean, if God is really real, and if God is loving, and if God is all-powerful, and, and God hates evil, then how could he let this happen? 
And so it might very well be that someone is hardened because of something that they've been through. Or it might be that they're hardened because of false beliefs. Some people are, are turned off to the gospel simply because they've given their lives to a false message. They're following a false religion, something like Islam or Hinduism or Buddhism or even the religion of atheism. And yes, it is a religion because it is a faith system. It is a belief system. And so these people have chosen to follow another path and they've given themselves completely to say they're going to live their lives by a certain standard. And so when they hear the gospel, they immediately reject it because they say that doesn't line up with what I think. Or maybe... They're hardened simply because of pride, because of arrogance. You know, some people might be open to the idea of a God in heaven, and they might even be willing to say, yeah, I believe that that God just might be the God of the Bible, but they don't want to give their life to Him. They want to have their own control. They say, I want to be the master of my own fate. I want to be the captain of my own ship. I don't need a God. And so they're hardened to the gospel because they, are in, they want to be in control of their lives. And so these people, these hardened people, hear the gospel, they reject it outright, and they continue to walk down the hard path toward destruction. And in, the mo- in that moment, the Bible tells us here that Satan swoops in like a bird, and he, he plucks up those seeds, and those seeds don't begin to take root toward salvation. Now let me just give a little side note here. Don't ever think that there's no hope for the hard person. Our God can break up any ground. And so when we do meet those people who are hardened to the gospel, we should not give up on them. Instead, we should pray for them. Our hearts should be broken for them. We should weep over them because we realize the path that they are on. Now, we'll talk more about that in a minute, but let's look at the second type of soil here that Jesus mentions. He talks about the rocky path. And this is the part of the field where he describes where there's only a few inches of dirt that cover up a hard bedrock. Or there's just that little bit of dirt. It kind of makes me think of like, you know, when you get weeds growing up in your driveway. You know, you've got all this rock and there's that little bitty weed that sprouts up in this little, just tiny amount of dirt. I kind of imagine that. And so here, that seed is cast out and it hits that ground and there's just a little bit of soil there and there's just enough for that seed to sink in just a little bit and and somehow it sprouts. Maybe it's the warmth from the rocks or something, but somehow this little plant sprouts. And everything seems promising, but not after just a short amount of time, Jesus, what Jesus describes here is he says that it begins to wither in the heat because there's no roots. Now let's listen to verse 20, and let's see how Jesus describes these people. He says, As for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. And so there seems to be this, this positive reception here. They receive it with joy. They're excited. They say, hey, this sounds good. Yet, verse 21, he has no root in himself but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. And so they've received the word. Their their faith seems to come to life. It shoots up with joy in a sense. It begins to sprout, but soon thereafter it all vanishes because there were no roots. In a sense, it was too good to be true. A few months ago, we had, I think it was kind of one of these kind of days like we have today and yesterday where it's rainy, and uh, Kim was trying to find something to do with the boys to keep 
two little six-year-olds occupied. Otherwise, they get destructive in the house and things get broken and stuff. And so she came up with this little idea and she took a piece of paper and she folded it four times and made it into a little book. And she told the boys, I want you to draw some pictures on this and then I want you to tell us a story that goes along with the book. And so they did it. They got all excited. They got their crayons out. And Will took his little book and he drew, he drew some pictures of these flowers. And he called his book, Two Happy Flowers on a Hill. And so I thought, oh, so cute. This is going to be sweet. And then we asked him, okay, Will, tell us this story that goes along this book. And this is how he did it. Um, and I'm not joking. He looks at us and he goes, there were two flowers playing on a hill. They were happy. And then he paused, almost too happy. <laughs> and, and I thought, in that moment, I thought, he's done wrote a psycho killer kid's book. <laughs> what, am, what am I going to do here? I, I mean, I have expected to turn the page and there was going to be some deranged lawnmower mowing down these flowers. I didn't know what to do. It, it was just, it was too good to be true. You know, sometimes we find people who respond to the gospel and it seems like their story's too good to be true for lack of a better term. And what I'm talking about here, I'm talking about those people who respond to Jesus. They walk an aisle. They get excited about their faith. And everything seems to be great. And they seem to be on fire for Christ. But then it's not too long and they completely vanish. And what faith they seem to have disappears and they walk away and they go right back to their old lives. Jesus said these are people who receive the word with joy. There's excitement here. There's, there seems to be some signs of growth even, but their faith proves to be false as soon as they begin to consider the cost of obedience. He blames it here on tribulations and persecutions, but listen to how he says it. Verse 21, he says, When tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. And so these are people who, when they begin to walk with Christ, they're learning how to walk with Christ, they, they, they realize this is going to be a difficult walk, and they say, this is not worth it. They decide that, the, that the, the benefit, the gain of following Jesus is less than the cost of walking away from their old life, and so they just get up and they go right back to their old ways. So proving that they never had a faith in Jesus to, to begin with. You ever met someone like this? I can remember one guy that I met... Um, he was the dad of one of, of a kid that came to my youth group at a, at a previous church. And uh, the pastor and I kind of tag-teamed this guy, and we witnessed to him over and over and over again. We'd go to his house. We'd meet up with him. And, and uh, he was kind of a rough guy, but we really, we really wanted to see him come to Jesus. And one day it seemed like we had succeeded. I mean, he, he prayed to receive Christ, and on the surface he gave every indication that his faith was real. Um, I mean, it seemed, it, it almost seemed like Paul-like radical at first, you know. He, like I said, he was kind of a rough guy, and he, he was in some, I don't really know what he did, but he was in some kind of sales industry um, where he would, in order to close the deal, he would take these, these clients to like, to like bars and strip clubs and all this kind of stuff in order to get them to sign this contract. And he decided, he said, when, I, when he came to Christ, he said, I'm giving all that up. I'm walking away from all that. I'm not going to do that anymore. And, and, he, and he started talking about how it was even hurting his sales and all this stuff. And we thought, oh, my goodness, this guy is for real. But it wasn't too long before he began to count the cost. And he decided, no, it's not worth it. And within a few weeks, maybe even a month, it all fizzled away, and he disappeared, and we never saw him again. You see, that temptation to return to his old life was stronger 
than his desire to follow Jesus. And in the process, I believe that at least at that moment in time, his faith was in fact dead because it had no roots. And it wasn't a true faith. His faith was really like a castle that was built on the sand. It was made to look all good at first, but then the waves of temptation, the waves of trials came in and washed it all back to nothing. That's rocky. That's shallow faith. But Jesus isn't done here talking about paths of destruction. He gives us another one. He says there's a thorny path. He describes that part of the path where the field is overrun with weeds, overrun with thorns. Look in verse 22. This is how he describes it. He says, as for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word. And it proves unfruitful. And so once again, things seem promising. The seed is cast, the seed sinks in, it begins to sprout, it begins to grow. But there's competition in the field in a sense. And so those other things choke out whatever chance that salvation faith had of taking root and of growing. There's too much competition. Too many things vying for attention that that person walks away from the faith. How many of you would describe yourselves as multitaskers? Anybody? Anybody say that think that you're good at doing multiple things at once? I am most definitely not. Um, and my wife and my friends will remind me that I have a one-track mind. I get on one thing, and I just want to get that one thing done. Um, and oftentimes we hear that women are better multitaskers than men. And men, if you don't believe it, just ask your wife. She'll tell you that she is a better multitasker than you. But did you know that multitasking is actually not good for you? Research has shown that when you do multitask, you actually get 40% less done. And you operate with 10%, a 10% lower IQ. And so multitasking makes you slower and dumber, in a sense. And so it really is better just to do one thing at a time. It really is more beneficial to focus on one thing at a time. And the same is true when it comes to spiritual matters. Divided attention produces poor followers. In fact, it can produce false followers what Jesus is describing here. That's what we see also in Mark chapter 10 with the rich young ruler. You remember that story? I preached on it a couple of weeks, Sunday nights ago. I mean, here is this guy who has got it all. He's got power. He has wealth. He has youth. Everything seems to be going for him. We, we read that he runs to Jesus and he says, Jesus, how can I have eternal life? I want, I, want to, I want to know you. I want to follow you. And Jesus begins to work through the commands with him. And, he, and, he, and Jesus hits him where it hurts. He says, walk away from your position. Walk away from your wealth and follow me. And the man wouldn't do it. Here he stood before the Savior of the world and he refused to follow Jesus because of his money, because of his possessions, because of his power. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And so Jesus is speaking in this parable about those who are trying to serve two masters. Uh, they're trying to, to see the faith grow, but they don't want to give up their life. It says in verse 22, the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke out the word and it proves unfruitful. And so their lives are full of the thorns of earthly things. And when it's time to lay it on the line, they refuse to do some weeding. And in a sense, their hands are so full of temporary 
earthly treasures that they cannot grasp the eternal gift of God. I think when we think about these last two paths, the rocky path and the thorny path, um, I think we're really describing people who might succumb to what we might call easy believism. You ever heard that phrase before? I'm talking about talking about those people that, 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 that hear the gospel, and this is how they hear it. You know, they buy into that line that says, well, just pray this prayer, and you can have eternal life at no cost to you, no commitment, no money down. Just come on down this aisle, and you can say these words, and you're going to have salvation. And they never count the cost. And sometimes we have to be honest and say that churches can be guilty of selling that type of faith. And we want to give all the benefits of heaven without helping people to understand that they have to count the cost of following Jesus. We might also call it fire insurance, but we might better call it cheap grace. Back in the 30s and 40s, there was a pastor in Germany um, named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and he actually was one that fought against the Germans. He actually was part of a conspiracy to take down um, Hitler. Um, He was eventually... Uh, executed by the Gestapo just days, maybe even hours before the war ended. Um, But he wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship, and he talks about this problem of cheap grace. And this is how he describes it. It's going to be on the screen. He says that cheap grace is the grace that we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. But genuine, costly grace, the grace that I believe leads to salvation, he says is costly because it causes us to follow. And it is grace because it causes us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it's grace because it gives a man the only true life. It's costly because it condemns sin and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son, And who has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon His Son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered Him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. Now, unfortunately, there are many who sit in chairs and pews and churches today, and even possibly in this church, who fit this category. They've prayed a prayer, and they'll tell you, yeah, I'm a Christian, but there's no fruit in their life. There's no growth in their life. There's no signs of true salvation in their life. Maybe they sit at home on a Sunday morning, and they say, well, yeah, there was that day back, in the, back when, whenever I prayed to receive Jesus. So me and God, we're okay. We got it all covered. And they're deceiving themselves because they're trying to live as divided people, but Jesus says you can't serve two masters. And so what's the proof? How do we know whether we're that person or whether we're a person who has true eternal life? Jesus says the proof's in the harvest. That very last patch of ground that Jesus describes, he says, is the good soil. And this is what he says in verse 23. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. And so there's that mental affirmation. This is right. This is true. There's an understanding of their heart. And then look at what it says next. It says, He indeed bears fruit and yields. In one case, a hundredfold, and another 60, and another 30. And so we can kind of compare it like this. That good soil is that soil that has been broken by the plow. It has been broken up by the plow. And the heart of the one who truly receives the gospel has been broken over their sin. 
They've come to realize that they're a sinful person before God and that there's nothing they can do to save themselves. And so then that good soul has been made ready for the seed then. And so for the person who is truly saved, there was that sense of lostness. There was that sense of realizing that their sin has separated them from God. And they cannot get to God on their own. That good soil is then open so that water can come in, so that there's room for growth. And the person who truly has Christ realizes that just like that physical dirt needs the water and that seed needs the water, that their lives need the water of the gospel. Their lives need the water of the word feeding them because they can't live without it. And that good soil produces a harvest. And in the true believer, there will be a harvest of Christ-like character, a harvest of obedience to the word, a hunger for the word, a desire to live in community with other Christians, a desire to live in God's will and on God's mission. Now, don't get confused here. Notice what Jesus says about the amounts of harvest. He says that some would produce a hundredfold, some would produce sixtyfold, and some would produce thirtyfold. But yet, every single type of soil is described as the good soil. And so the question isn't the amount, it's simply the presence or absence of fruit. That's the sign that there is growth. You know, harvests don't come overnight. I've never planted a seed and watched it shoot up overnight and produce a harvest in a day. Is anybody in here? I don't think so. I haven't found that plant yet. And so harvests don't grow overnight and they're not perfect, but they ought to come if things are right. And so true believers ought to produce fruit. John chapter 15, verse 8, Jesus said, this is my father, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. James talks about how that faith that is living will produce works. And if it doesn't have works, it's dead. Now, might there be times when, when good soil, with the weeds would begin to creep in again? Yes. I mean, that's going to happen. But, I mean, the struggle of sin doesn't disappear overnight. I mean, there might be things as believers that we struggle with till the day that we die. There might be particular sins that are our thorns in the flesh that we continually fight with till the day we die. But the true believer is one who will repeatedly allow the Lord to apply the plow of conviction to their life. Repeatedly will allow the Lord to bust up sin and selfishness in their hearts and will bring them to a point of repentance into a stronger faith over and over again. That's the good soil. That's the person who's on the path to life. The person who is following Jesus wholeheartedly. That's the assurance that we can have that we have salvation when our life matches the good soil. Now let me close today with a couple of points of application really quick. And the first one is simply this. Don't lose heart. And this is what I mean by this. The, the first message that Jesus wanted his disciples to catch in this moment was this. Guys, don't lose heart. I mean, he is describing these four soils to his disciples so that they can understand that there are going to be times that they proclaim the gospel and everybody's not going to get it. That they're not going to catch it right away. And he's telling them this to encourage them not to give up sharing the gospel. He's telling them this to encourage them that, that the success is not dependent upon them but is dependent upon the Holy Spirit. It's God that brings the growth, not us. 
And so when we do share the gospel, when we do have friends and loved ones who are hardened to the gospel, don't become, I mean, don't lose heart when they don't receive it. It's not your fault. If you're living in obedience and sharing the gospel, you are doing what you're called to do. Continue to do what you're called to do. But also, don't lose heart in thinking that they're never going to get it. It might be that the seeds of the gospel need the tears coming out of your face to soften the ground. We need to be praying for those. We don't need to give up hope for those who are hard to the gospel because our God can break up any ground. There is no one beyond His reach. So long as there is breath in our lungs, we still have opportunity to receive the gospel. And it might be that we just need to continue to pray for those we know, knowing and believing that our prayers might be what breaks up the soil, that God might use what we're praying and respond to our prayers and soften them to the gospel. But secondly, we need to check our own hearts. Jesus doesn't mix words here. He doesn't soften it. He basically says there are four types of people and only one gets to heaven. The one who produces fruit. I said a moment ago that sometimes we can buy into this easy believism and we think, okay, so long as I pray to prayer at some point in my life, there doesn't have to be anything to show for it. Just so long as I pray to prayer, that's not going to get you into heaven. A prayer said half-heartedly that shows no evidence of, of reality in your life is not a salvation prayer. Those are just words that you repeated because someone told you to. The evidence is in the fruit. And so we, as people sitting in this room who have heard the gospel through this text, need to check our own hearts. How do we know we're saved? We know there's a root when we can see the fruit. And once again, Jesus is saying here that it doesn't matter the amount. At first, harvests take time. But if there is a root, then there ought to be a fruit. And so that's how I'd like to close today with that challenge, with that message. Do you know that you're saved? I've never been one to want to scare people into thinking they're unsaved when they are truly saved. But I don't want to, I don't want to back off of what Jesus says here. If we want to find our way to eternal life, we'd better make sure we're on the right path. Would you pray with me? Father, we do pray for everyone in this room. God, I don't know every single soul. I don't know every detail of their lives, but you do. And God, you know whether our faith is real or not. And so I'm praying that today, that if there be one in this, in this room who says, you know what, I've been hardened to the word. Or you know what, I've allowed other things to crowd out the gospel, and I never really gave my life to Jesus I've been putting on a show. I've been sitting in a church pew. I've been, I've been taking up a seat. I've been showing up. But you know what? My faith is not real. I pray that today would be that day that they would allow you to break up the soil and they would allow the seeds of the gospel to take root in their lives and that today they would begin growing toward you, that they would surrender their life to you as Lord but also as Savior as the redeemer of their life and also the ruler of their life. Father, I pray that you would do a work.
And God, I do pray for us as believers in this room, God, that, that I know, I know, I know without a shadow of a doubt that we have friends, we have loved ones that, that, that are on the, <coughs> on the path to destruction. And I pray that, I pray our Bibles would be full of tears that come down our face because we're broken over the hard hearts of our friends and that we would be committed to taking the gospel to them so that you could save them as well. Father, do your work in us as we come to this time of invitation. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen. Stand as we sing.